Well, good morning, and happy Mother's Day one more time to all the moms, those of you online. As I was thinking about wrapping up this series that we've titled Curtain Call, looking at these post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, it occurred to me that moms get to make curtain calls sometimes. Not, not necessarily the one where you step back on stage for everybody to clap and applaud you, but maybe the ones where your head finally hits the pillow after a long day, and you hear that little, Mommy calling you from somewhere in the house, whether it's a sick kid or they need a glass of water or they had a bad dream or whatever it is, moms make a lot of curtain calls, somewhat unexpected. And so today, we have the opportunity to celebrate moms, to applaud for them and to clap for them as an audience does at a curtain call. And yet, it also always is fresh in my mind, without taking anything away from the celebration of Mother's Day, As Pastor Zach mentioned in his prayers, Mother's Day can be complicated sometimes. And so we recognize that as well. That while it is a day for celebrating and we want to celebrate moms and celebrate the motherly influences in our lives, we recognize that it's also a day for grieving, a day for lamenting, a day for longing, but maybe a day for accepting or a day for forgiving. And I'm thankful that we have a Lord and Savior in the person of Jesus Christ who is with us in all of those postures. So whether you celebrate unreservedly today and everything is wonderful for you this Mother's Day or whether there is grief or there is lament or there is regret or there is something to accept or something to forgive, Jesus is with us in each and every one of those postures and we can be thankful and grateful for that today. So as I mentioned, we are concluding this three-part series titled The Curtain Call, where we've been looking at three post-resurrection appearances that Jesus makes shortly after his death and resurrection. And they take place with individuals. They take place with groups. The three that we've looked at, we started with Mary Magdalene, that first Easter morning at the, at the empty tomb that Jesus interacts with Mary and moves her from deep, deep sorrow to abundant joy. And that because she stayed at the foot of the cross, or as she stayed at the, at the tomb longer than others, her joy came before that of the others. Then last week we looked at Jesus and the disciples that evening in the upper room as they were hiding for fear of the Jews, we're told. They were terrified and afraid. Jesus enters into that moment of fear. And he moves their fear into bold faith courageous faith, faith to follow, faith to serve, faith to boldly proclaim the good news that we are recipients of today. And in that interaction, Jesus speaks peace to them two separate times. He greets them with peace and says, peace be with you as he enters into this room because they were already afraid. Now there's somebody in the room when the door were locked. He says, peace be with you. And then again, he says, peace be with you, as he says to them, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And we talked about how he doesn't just bring us the peace with God through his death and resurrection and his conquering sin and death. He brings us peace with God. We can all have peace with God despite how far we may have gotten from God. He also brings us the peace of God through the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them. And said, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he commissioned them. And so he gives us the peace of God to go and do the work of God. Today we're going to look at Jesus and Peter. Another one-on-one encounter. And this is the, kind of the final interchange that takes place 
in the Gospel of John. We've been focusing on these post-resurrection appearances as they appear in John's Gospel. And we see Jesus moving Peter from a disgraced denier to a disciple-maker and a leader in the early church. And uh, last week I shared a quote that has just been kind of mulling around in my mind ever since. Maybe it hits you that same way. And I said that it's a quote from Warren Wiersbe where he explains that wherever people were confronted with the reality of Christ's resurrection, their lives were transformed. So whether that was Mary Magdalene at the empty tomb that first Easter morning, or it was the disciples later that evening, or it was Peter here in this exchange, or any other time throughout history where people have been confronted with the reality of the resurrection, their lives have been transformed. And I reflected on that, and I thought about how there are times, there's a time in my life when I say I was confronted with the reality of the resurrection, And my life has been transformed as a result of that. But I could also see that this applies to areas of our lives as well. That there were some areas of my life that I didn't fully surrender. I didn't fully open up to the Lord and to the reality of the resurrection, the power of the resurrection to overcome sin and death on our behalf had been sort of excluded by me. And that there have been areas of my life that have opened up and allowed the power and the grace of God to flood in and bring transformation wherever the power of the resurrection comes into a life or into a part of our life. It can transform our lives. So whether that applies to you individually, to your family, to us corporately, or to specific areas of your lives, this is true. And so as we look into God's Word this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 21. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to open it up to John chapter 21, or you can grab one of our hardcover Bibles. They're in the seats in front of you. You can turn to page 1687. I was trying to decide how to set this up. I really want to focus on verses 15 through 19. And as I thought about how I would explain everything that had happened before that so that you would be on the same page, I realized I think it will be quicker to read (laughs) those 14 verses than to try to explain everything. So I'm going to read through those and just briefly comment. I promise I will just briefly comment. I won't preach two sermons. But we we need to understand all that has led up to this specific interaction between Jesus and Peter. So reading from John chapter 21 verses 1 through 14, we start with this line in verse 1 afterward, after Jesus had appeared to Mary Magdalene and then to the disciples and then to, um, to Thomas in John chapter 20, afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter said, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So it's interesting. Jesus told them he was going to meet them there. He told them he was going to go up to Galilee. I'll meet you there. And so this is happening. This is a fulfillment of that promise. And I find it interesting that they're fishing, that seven of the disciples are together and they are going fishing. And we don't quite know what to make of this. Some commentaries seem to indicate that this is probably because they were going back to their old way of life. They kind of thought the ship had sailed and we better get back in the boat and start fishing to earn a living. 
Others say, no, maybe they were just filling the time. They were waiting for Jesus to come. They were back at the Sea of Galilee. This is a hometown for many of them or near the hometown for many of them. And maybe they really liked fishing. And this was a way to pass the time and perhaps uh, come up with a little income while they waited for Jesus. We don't really know for sure. That's not spelled out for us. But we do know that seven of them were fishing together and that they caught nothing. John doesn't withhold that detail, even though these were professional fishermen. It caught my attention that perhaps this was the first time that some of these men had fished in over three years. Despite being career fishermen, this was the first time they had been in a boat to catch fish for some time. So maybe they were just a little rusty, or maybe there was a deeper significance, and the table was being set for something more. Reading in verse 4, Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not recognize or realize that it was Jesus. So he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. Now, if you've read the Gospel of Luke recently, this sounds strangely familiar, perhaps. And you might be thinking about when Jesus calls Peter in Luke chapter 5. There's a very similar circumstance that has played out. Peter has been fishing all night and has caught nothing. And Jesus tells him, cast your nets one more time and you'll catch some fish. And then there's a miraculous catch of fish. And so all of this had to be super familiar to Peter, almost a deja vu moment. Does anybody else have those where you're like, that thing that just happened, that's already happened, but it hasn't happened. What is going on? And that had to be going through Peter's mind right now, echoing his call. And, and when what struck me, I went back and I read that. And I saw that Peter's first response to Jesus, once he recognizes that he's the Messiah, is he falls on his knees and he says, depart from me, Lord. For I am a sinful man. He does not feel worthy to be in the presence of the Messiah. He doesn't feel worthy to have any attention from the Messiah. So he says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. And here, three and a half years later, after following him, after all the ups and downs, after all that they have been through together, once he recognizes Jesus, it's an irrational immediate, impulsive pursuit. He cannot wait to get to Jesus. He is not thinking clearly because nobody puts on their heavy outer cloak in order to swim a hundred yards in open water, okay? That would just be a hindrance. But he's not thinking. He's like, I got to get to Jesus. He grabs his coat. He jumps into the water and he can't wait to get there. And then in verse 9, we pick up the story. When they had landed, the rest of the disciples, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. 
And this was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And so there's more rich symbolism and there's more echoing that is taking place from the other narratives that have preceded this. You might recognize that phrase, a charcoal fire. And if you've read the Gospel of John recently and paid attention to the very end, when Peter denies Jesus three times, the first of those denials is around a charcoal fire in the priest of the high court. And so here Jesus has prepared a charcoal fire once again. And here Jesus has baked bread and has some fish for them. And I can't help but think that Jesus enjoyed eating. In several of the Gospels, he asked them, do you have any food? In these post-resurrection appearances. And I think he enjoyed taking food in. And I think he enjoyed taking food in with people and the fellowship that that brings and the openness that that brings, and the unity that that brings. But I also think it's interesting that while Peter denied Jesus around a charcoal fire in the court of the high priest, he's now sitting around a charcoal fire with the high priest, like Hebrews refers to Jesus as the high priest over all high priests, the perfect, righteous high priest. And it's very clear from what follows that Jesus' intentions were to restore Peter. But I find it interesting. He he lets him warm up and dry off and have a meal first. And Wearsby pointed this out. He said, you know, Jesus wasn't so focused on the soul that he neglected the body. He recognizes that Peter just swam 100 yards. He's out of breath. So have a seat. Warm up around the fire. Have some bread. Have some fish. And then... He moves into the second phase here, into the phase where he restores Peter. And so picking up in verse 15 through 19, I want to read through this paragraph and the interaction that takes place, and then I want to walk through it verse by verse because there is a lot that is contained in these few verses. So when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Now you may have noticed in verses 15 through 17 that there's this cycle that repeats itself. Jesus asks Peter a question. Peter responds to that question. And then Jesus responds or answers Peter's response. Did you see that kind of play out? There's little differences each time, though, aren't there? There's a little nuance or a little difference in wording. And most commentaries agree that there were three questions because there had been a threefold denial. And so Peter needed a threefold restoration. And it takes place in a public setting that Peter had denied Jesus publicly, and so Jesus restores Peter publicly. 
And as we walk through this, I hope that you'll see our bottom line today, and that is that Jesus does not just forgive, he restores. Jesus does not just forgive Peter, he restores Peter to ministry. Jesus does not just forgive us, he restores us to the original purpose that our lives had in the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't just forgive, he restores And so where Peter had made a threefold denial, he receives a threefold restoration and a threefold commissioning. In each case, he has an opportunity to affirm his love for Jesus, and in each case, Jesus gives him a mission, work to do. I also find it interesting that each time Jesus refers to him as Simon, son of John. Simon, son of John. Simon, son of John. There's not another Simon there, okay? And so I had to say, why is that so important? Why does Jesus refer to him by his whole name? And my mind went to this, the fact that this was an honor-shame culture and that Peter, by denying his Lord, by denying his rabbi three times, had not brought shame only to himself but to his whole family. And I think there may be an element of Jesus restoring him and wiping away that shame that had come. You are Simon Son of John, I know exactly who you are. I know who your father is. And I'm here to restore you. There's also an interesting thing that kind of you have to look at the original language. You see just a shadow of it in the New International Version. How many of you noticed in verse 15 and 16, Jesus says, do you truly love me? Anybody else pick up on that? Because in verse 17, he just says, do you love me? And I thought, I wonder why that is. So I went and I looked, and and sure enough, in verse 15 and 16, in the original language, in the Greek, Jesus asks Peter, do you agape me? Do you self-sacrificing surrender to me? That's what that word agape means in the original Greek language. And then in verse 17, he asks, do you phileo me? Do you brotherly love me? Do you friendship love me? And so that sent me back into the commentaries. I had to find out, what do people think about this? What What have the brilliant minds and biblical scholars of, of the past, what do they have to say about that? And some say it has some significance that Jesus is asking Peter, do you agape love me? And each time Peter responds, I brotherly love you. Each time I phileo you, Jesus. But others say that John uses these words interchangeably and that there are other stories where there's not a significance to the difference between them and that John was sprinkling some variety in. So we don't know the answer to that question. We do know that the NIV adds the truly in front of agape, but not in front of phileo. And so I tend to kind of land on the don't overthink this. Sometimes the most reasonable uh, explanation is the best. And there was a pretty strong case to be made for John's interchangeable uh, usage of synonyms throughout his gospel, not just love, but in other places. And so somebody kind of geeked out with that, and uh, I respected it. So you can kind of lean into that if you want to go a little deeper with it. But I really want to focus on, on these three interactions, verse 15, 16, and 17. In the first one, in verse 15, Jesus asked him, do you truly love me more than these? So he's saying, do you agape me more than these? And it's not clear what these is referring to. There are at least three options that Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than you love these other six men who have been fishing with you and have been walking around with you for the last three and a half years? Do you love me more than you love them? That's a question. 
That's a possibility. The second one would be the fish. Do you love me more than these fish? Do you love me and following me more than you love fishing and catching fish and being a fisherman? Do you love your new identity that I have given you in the kingdom of heaven more than you love your old identity of being a fisherman? Do you love me more than you love these fish? And then the third one, and and this is the one that I kind of seem to prefer and a lot of commentaries agreed with this, is that Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me more than these men love me? Peter, do you love me more than these other six men love me? And the reason that some of the commentaries pointed out that this is very likely the reason is that this was Peter who had said, even if everybody else falls away, Lord, I'll never fall away. I love you more than all of these men. And so part of his restoration, because part of his shame in denying him three times was he said, I would never, ever do that. Even if everybody else did, even if all these other schmucks do, I never will. And then he did. And so the first question that Jesus asks, do you really love me more than these guys love me? They didn't deny me. Might have been the implied question. But Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so Jesus responds to him. This is the commissioning for Peter. He says, feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. And I think this points to the many new converts that would be coming into the church, that these would be like little lambs. Jesus was the great shepherd. He, he had declared himself, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Now that has all come to pass. That has all been fulfilled. And Jesus is saying to Peter, there's going to be a lot of new converts. They are going to be like little lambs. They are precious to me. You feed them. You make sure that they have what they need to grow and to become stronger. You feed them. Feed them from the word. Feed them from the stories that you can tell about who I am and what I have done. Feed them with the letters that you will write. Feed them with the leadership that you will bring to the new church in Jerusalem and in the other parts of the world. So that's the first interchange. And then in the second interaction, in verse 16, we see just a few differences. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? This time there's no comparison more than these, just do you love me? And Peter answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Exact same response from Peter, but he gets a different response from Jesus. Jesus says, take care of my sheep. Take care of my sheep. So now instead of feed my lambs, it's take care of my sheep. Sheep would be older than lambs, and taking care of is more comprehensive than just feeding. To take care of someone is to provide for their nourishment, but also to protect them, to lead them, to guide them, and to provide for them in in a more comprehensive way. And so there's an indication in which Peter is going to grow and mature and be able to be a better shepherd for the sheep. And the sheep are also going to grow and mature. And they're going to have different needs, not just food, not just milk, They'll need some meat, as other places in Scripture indicate this progression. As we mature as disciples, we have different needs. And so Jesus is saying to Peter, I don't want you to just feed my lambs. I also want you to care for my sheep. Some translations translate this as shepherd my sheep. You be their shepherd. Yes, I am the good shepherd. I am the great shepherd. I am the quintessential shepherd. But I will also be appointing under shepherds pastors and apostles and prophets and teachers, and you will be one of those, and you will shepherd the maturing sheep of this new church. And so Jesus is pointing out that there will be a progression, 
that will take place and that you are to lead them on toward maturity as you yourself mature. And then this final interaction with Peter, there are also some differences. This third time, Jesus says to him in verse 17, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now he's saying phileo. If that's significant, we're not 100% sure. But he says, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And this is the one that gets me. Because Peter clearly had no idea all that Jesus was accomplishing with the threefold restoration from the threefold denial. He's hurt. And sometimes I think we get a little hurt. We get a little offended in that thing that God is doing in order to fully restore us. And yet it gives Peter an opportunity to make a declaration that affirms Jesus' omniscience, his sovereignty, his authority. He says, Lord, you know everything. You know it all. And if there was any doubt in Peter's mind that he didn't love Jesus, he wouldn't have said what he just said. He says, you know everything. You know I love you. I couldn't lie to you if I tried. You know I love you. And then Jesus responds, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Keep feeding them. Keep nourishing them. Keep feeding them what they need from the word of God, from the leadership that you will bring. And that is why our bottom line today is that Jesus doesn't just forgive. He restores. He restores Peter to ministry, to prominent ministry. Peter is one of the, if not the preeminent leader in the early church until this guy named Saul turns into a Paul and goes on to missionary journeys. It was Peter. It was James. They were the big ones. And in each case, he not only restores him, he also commissions him. And I believe this is true for us as well, that we are not just forgiven. We are restored. And the things that we did, the sins that we committed that pushed us away from God, that separated us from God, He restores that. He brings us back. He restores the original purpose that He had for our lives and that the gifts that we were given, the spiritual gifts that we have are now available to the kingdom in order to accomplish God's work in this world as ministers of reconciliation. We are now ambassadors for Christ. We're representatives of Christ because we weren't just forgiven. We're restored. That song we sang, that new song today, that God so loved the world that he gave us his son. He went way beyond just forgiveness. He brought restoration. And he commissions and sends us to do his will, to serve Christ and to bless others. But I don't want to neglect verse 18 and 19, and this is a puzzling uh, couple of verses that don't quite seem to fit the rest of it. And yet I do think that they have their place. And so in those same line, in the same quote where Jesus says in verse 17, feed my sheep, he says, I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me, follow me. 
Now, Jesus never sugarcoated things, but I got to be honest with you, I might have left this part of the conversation for another time, right? Like, we just had this wonderful restoration and this commissioning. Do you really have to tell him how he's going to die? Like, does that fit? And yet I think it does. John tells us what this means. In verse 19, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God, that he would be stretched out. And history tells us that Peter was crucified under Nero in Rome in about 64 AD. Tradition tells us that he requested to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel like he was worthy of dying in the same manner of his Lord and Savior. We don't have that in a biblical record, but that is what Christian history tells us. And yet, I think the most significant words in verse 18 and 19 are the last two. Follow me. Follow me. You've been restored. You've been commissioned. You have work to do. History tells us he had about 30 years to continue that work from around AD 33 to 64. But he's saying, I believe, follow me in your life and be willing to follow me to your death. Whenever that may be, he doesn't tell him when, he tells him how. Just keep following me. Don't forget, he just told them in John 20, verse 21, as the Father has sent me, so am I sending you. I have forgiven you, Jesus is saying. I have restored you, I have redeemed you, I have commissioned you, and you will be with me forever, so follow me. Follow me with the rest of your life. Follow me right up to your death. Just keep following me. And I say that to those of you who might be struggling today. Those of you who might be grieving today. Those of you who might be overwhelmed today. Keep following him. Keep following him. Keep coming back to him. And keep following him. Even to your death. Because death is not the end. For those who are following Christ, death is not the end. And AD 64, Peter knew something, and we know something about Peter that Nero didn't know. His death was not the end. It was just the beginning. And so we can follow Jesus through life, and we can follow Jesus right up to death, because death is not the end. Invite the uh, worship team to come back up. And as we do, I for one am thankful that Jesus doesn't just forgive. He restores When I came to Jesus, I was in need of forgiveness, yes. But I was also in need of restoration. I needed the gifts that he had given me that I had misused to be restored and to be commissioned into his kingdom. Because he doesn't just restore, too. He commissions us, and he doesn't just commission. He empowers. Don't forget, he breathed on them and gave them the Holy Spirit. In just a few days from this interaction, they will receive the Holy Spirit. And what does Peter do on that morning of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they're speaking in all these different languages and there's tongues of fire on their head? Peter gets up and preaches. Peter the denier is now Peter the disciple maker. Peter the disgrace is now Peter, the leader of the church, calling people to salvation. And 3,000 were saved that day. He doesn't just forgive. He restores and he commissions and he empowers. So how does this apply to you today? Where in your life 
Does the rubber meet the road from this passage and from this lesson? Are you here in need of forgiveness from Christ? He will absolutely forgive you. You can come to an altar. You can make an altar where you're seated. You can make an altar out of your couch or your easy chair. And you can get down on your knees and you can say, Lord Jesus, I need you to forgive me. I confess my sins. I ask you to come into my life and to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. And I look to you to not only forgive me, but to restore me and to commission me and to give me work to do in your kingdom. Maybe you're here and you've been forgiven, but you don't realize that you've been restored. That there's a restoration that God wants to bring about in your life as we surrender everything completely to him and say, I love you, I love you, I love you. Send me where you want me to go. Tell me what you want me to do. I'll go, I'll do it. Today can be the day where there is restoration. And maybe you just need to be encouraged to keep following. Maybe it's gotten hard. You need to be reminded that even if it leads to our death, he is a savior worth following. And death is not the end. And we will be with him for eternity. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your word. So thankful for your spirit. So thankful for your love that, that is, loves us too much to just forgive us. You also restore us. You commission us. You redeem everything about us. You call us deeper. You call us higher. You long for us to desire you above everything else. And so, Lord, as we conclude this message in this series, I pray that your spirit would lead us into all the truth and each of us would take a next step with you where you are leading. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.